listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today I'm very excited to introduce a good friend of mine. I've known her many, many years. She's now the People Director at the UK Civil Aviation Authority. And I know that her journey, the decisions that she made throughout her career are going to be really interesting. Um, You can tell when somebody is successful, when you have to make an appointment with their PA to get them to talk to you. (laughs) So welcome, Jane. Lovely to see you. Thank you, Jill. I'm delighted to be here. Let's begin at the beginning. People in the UK will hear when you start talking roughly where you come from, but the rest of the world won't. So where were you born? So I was born in Birmingham in the West Midlands, which is sort of in the middle of England. Mm -hmm. I was one of five and um, I did quite well at school. And I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school, which is where you need to take an entrance exam to get in. Um, And I did okay. I found it a little bit difficult because I'd been at a school where I was the only girl who passed the exam to get into a grammar school. So you sort of think that you're special. And then you get to a school where all of a sudden everybody's passed that exam and you're not quite the top performer. Um, And now you're somewhere in the middle of the pack, which was fine. But at 14, I developed epilepsy. Um, It was quite impactful. At my age, I sort of think going back to that time, Um, everything I asked about doing as a career, I was told it wasn't possible because of my medical condition. So I couldn't be a doctor, couldn't be a teacher, I couldn't join the forces. Um, Everything I seemed to ask, people told me I couldn't do. I'm a little bit headstrong, so not surprisingly, I, I rebelled. So I put down my books and I never picked them back up again for two years. So I left school with very few qualifications and decided that I would seek uh, employment rather than going on to further education. Um, So I went into the workplace at 16 on an apprenticeship. Um, And actually it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me at that point in time. I ended up in a law firm, which was the start of my um, career proper. So interesting. I'm hearing the parallels. Uh, We've known each other 20 years, but there are some things that I didn't know. We both went to a grammar school. They're not there anymore. Um, I I left school at 18, having not done very well, scraped through things. My parents wanted me to go to university, and I was just fed up. I was just fed up of learning. And I knew that if I went, I would have no motivation to do anything. So, So, yes, that's when I moved into the civil service. And we'll talk about that later because that's that's where we came across each other isn't it so you're 16 you move into a law firm you said it's the best thing that could have happened to you at that point so what happened then I met the first in a series of tremendous people who helped me in my career and um, she was the leader of the the apprenticeship program and the first day she gave me some advice and she said to me Jane find something that's broke and fix it and that will set you up And I walked into the office and I found something broke that I could fix. And it was quite a simple job. They had lots of posts that were sitting in a tray that hadn't been connected with the files that it related to. And whilst that seems quite a menial and odd thing to focus on, actually what it meant was that when the lawyer was picking up the file, they actually didn't have all of the information to take the next step in the case. So sometimes there might be quite a relevant letter that hadn't actually made its way to the file and then they would take an action and it had already been overtaken. So by the end of that week, there was nothing in that post tray because I had found every single file and um, put every single piece of paper into it. And I kept up with that. I think that placement was really good for me because... I've actually always had a thirst for learning and that's followed me through my life. And although I felt crushed by um, my diagnosis and, and quite frankly, 
I'm very, very lucky. It's largely been controlled most of my adult life. And there are lots of people who have conditions that are debilitating and impact their daily lives. And I, I, I'm lucky not to have that. Um, what that enabled me to do was to just learn different things. So I taught myself to type. I started in the job as an office junior so doing things like the post and whatever and then I became the receptionist and then I became a secretary and then gradually in in no time at all the firm must have spotted some potential and they offered to sponsor me for a law degree I didn't take it up but Mm -hmm. it was there you've taken everybody back to a pre-computer days (laughs) almost there you've certainly taken me back because I used to link post with case papers. That was my first job in a social security office. And it it just took all day. You were walking around looking in everybody's tray and everybody's drawers across three floors. I, I remember it distinctly. And they played a joke on me, like they played a joke on everybody and said, have you tried the lost case paper drawer? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, my goodness, that takes me back. Okay, so you were the... Office Junior, they even wanted to sponsor you to take a law degree. So where did you go from there? I think that I had fallen out of love with formal learning that was subject based. Mm -hmm. I didn't see myself being a lawyer. I, I, you know, I was working around them and I admired them and certain elements of the job appealed to me. But I didn't want to be um, a narrow expert in one field. Um, what I actually started to discover was the management side of things. So I actually liked working with people. I liked working with teams. I enjoyed um, being part of a team. And eventually a job came up working for a different law firm where it, it wasn't straight away going to be a leadership role. Um, it was a new firm that was being set up. And they offered me the opportunity to set up a new Birmingham office. So they were based in London, but they wanted to set a new office up in Birmingham. So they wanted somebody local and they wanted somebody that understood the type of law that I had been working in. And um, I jumped at that. I went to do the job and we started out with two solicitors and myself on day one. Um, And then by the time I left, after about six years, we'd gone up to 70. And learning on the job, you know, that's critical for me. But And that six years, my gosh, I learned. And I learned a lot. And that's probably where my HR career started, because I I was the office manager, sort of um, corporate services person. Mm. So doing a lot of human resources. And that would be private sector at that time. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you were there six years. It went from two solicitors up to 70 people in the office. Uh, where did you go from there? All of the experience that I got with the um, human resources side of things and frankly making up policy on the, on, you know, on the fly. Um, I then saw a job advertised which sounded very, very similar to what I'd done which was actually the public defender service. That's where I first met you. Um, And I was recruited into the Birmingham office to be their sort of uh, quality manager. That was my first entrance into a civil service job. And that would have been, yeah, 2001. So that was 20 years ago. And you'd gone from private to public sector. So then where did you move from, from there? I think what was critical for me with that was it was into the civil service, into public sector and the opportunities that the civil service gives you. You know, they've got 450,000 employees and it opens up a whole new world. I was in my job in the public defender service. I absolutely loved it. Time moved on. You eventually um, moved on from that role to a different role. I was then responsible for doing stuff across all of the offices. Um, I was the first non-lawyer in that role in the public defender service to manage the lawyers directly in one of the offices, which was interesting um, and and really put me in some good stead for my future career of of managing technical people. But what it did was it gave me opportunity through the rest of the Ministry of Justice and I applied for the talent programme that we launched. And on the back of that, I got a couple of jobs within 
the Legal Services Commission. But then we had a couple of real issues. And I guess this this comes down to one of my big learnings through my career, which is I'd started off in HR, in human resources. So I started off doing personnel work, whatever. But that gradually morphed and I, I found myself in leadership positions which were very much more general. So I moved from there. I guess that the next biggest job to talk about would be when I became director of criminal legal aid. Um, it was a big operational job um, processing a billion pounds worth of claims with you know a big budget to handle. But I guess the reason I applied for it and got it was because I understood how criminal legal aid worked. I understood how the fee schemes worked and I understood how um, solicitors interacted with the agency because I, I had done that from a, a, a practitioner level. Um, yes, you'd started off in the private sector offices that dealt with the Legal Services Commission. And while you were talking, I was listening to management experience. How do you manage experts? How do you manage people when you don't have that expertise? I had a similar uh, experience too, and it's very different. You also had to learn how to manage remotely because the officers were all over England and Wales, weren't they? So all different styles of management. And as you say, the opportunities in the civil service to just move around and learn as you go. We were both lucky, weren't we? Yeah. I think on the, the technical, managing technical people, I think it's a combination of trust and respect. Mm. I think it's trusting people that we all go to work to want to do a good job. And nobody turns up in the morning wanting to go in and slack. I really fundamentally believe that. Um and respect people for the technical skills they've got and give them the freedom to apply those in the best way that's going to um, help the organisation. But also being able to be clear about what value you bring and what your skills and experience are, is and why you're there. I do um, a NED role, a non-executive role at the moment for a multi-academy trust. And, and they've just appointed a chief executive who isn't a head teacher. And it's the same kind of thing that the chief executive doesn't need to know about curriculum and how you change outcomes for children. What they need to know is how to run a business, but they also need to be able to inspire and motivate the head teachers to do the things that they're great at. The longer your career goes on, and and I suppose, I hate to think about it in hierarchy terms because I'm not a hierarchical person, but the higher you go up in an organization, the less technical you need to become. You have to shed some of that technical not shed it, but it becomes less important. Hmm. Um, and then the managing remotely, <laughs> I think it's been really good to see this pandemic. It's now forced people to do that. And actually, it's simple things. It's about, you know, constant communication. It's about, it's about treating people as humans, not just having work transactions, but actually being interested in people understanding what motivates them if you're going to make change happen being clear about why change is happening or or, you know any any kind of initiatives or you know just taking time to praise taking time to um, recognize what the team is up to and and listening I guess. Hmm. Thinking about where you started off then particularly when you thought learning isn't for me and fortunately you were you were sort of picked up if you like I don't want to say you were lucky because I know that you are somebody who's got formidable willpower and strength Um, but you met the person the leader of the apprenticeship program who gave you some advice and you didn't actually let your start in life define you did you? I think I've been really lucky because I've met a few people who have given me who've either seen something in me or have known that I was the right person at the right time. And a few of those I would say, so in the Public Defender Service, um, the head of the service in Birmingham, um, Lee, he was brilliant. I, I, he he recognised in me, I was very similar to him. He, he came to his professional career quite late in life. And I think he recognised that I had this sort of um, inferiority complex, sort of this thing drawing, pulling me back. And he supported me to do an MBA. So I did a master's in business administration. 
did it really give me anything else? No, it didn't. But it gave me confidence sometimes that I had a badge to say that I could learn at that level or, you know, that I wasn't stupid or whatever, because some of those things are the things that keep you awake at night. I was lucky enough to have you who, you know, you saw there was a, a, an issue in Swansea and, and you put your trust in me to help fix it. And you gave me to the freedom to go down there and do it without scrutiny. You just trusted my judgment and said, I'm here if you need anything. Um, and when you moved on, you also gave me your support in going for the job. Um, and I, I also remember when I was doing my dissertation for my MBA, it was about we were introducing the balanced scorecard oh, yes. um, into the PDS at the time. And um, I had a, a way I'm quite I'm quite headstrong, as I've said. I had a way that I thought we should be implementing the balanced scorecard. You knew that it wouldn't work. Um, and you didn't tell me it, it, that won't work, Jane. You coached me and I was still confident that the way I was going to approach it was the right thing. But you let me try and you let me fail, but you supported me. And I think, and we ended up doing it the way that you were, you were trying to suggest. But that's not because you battered me over the head with it. It's because you coached. I made a decision, but you were there to support and guide me afterwards. It wasn't a big thing, but actually that's how people learn. You learn from mistakes. You have to try things. You, you can't just keep giving people the answer. People have to try for themselves, experiment, take risks, but know that no matter what happens, they've got a support network somewhere, whether that's in their workplace or whether that's in their professional workspace or whether that's at home, you know, knowing that you've got the proper support network is the thing that overcomes all of those imposter syndrome moments. Yes, we all have imposter syndrome. And again, I can hear a similarity because when I went into the civil service and I went back after having my children, I always thought, oh, everybody else has got a degree. Oh, maybe I should have done a degree at the right time. And York University got together with the Department of Social Security and came up with this. They didn't say an MBA, they called it an MA in Social Policy and Social Security Management. And I went for it and I can remember going, I had to go away for a week to York University and I rang up every night <laughs> saying, can I come home? Everybody's better than me. I just can't manage this. But as you said, once, once you get it, you, you think, okay, I'm at the same level as everybody else. And that imposter syndrome calms down a little bit. So we've got, don't let your start in life define you. Everybody's got this imposter syndrome. The big difference is, can we learn to live with it and manage it? And you've talked about how you learn, you learn through experience, and now you're allowing other people to learn through experience. So where did you move on to after the Legal Services Commission? Because this is where we parted ways, I guess. In fact, I might have left before you did. Yeah, so I, I did the Director of Criminal Legal Aid job, which was brilliant. It was the best job in the world. I loved it. Um, I was based in Nottingham, then another city in the centre of, of England um, where you're from. And I wouldn't have left that job, I don't think, but I met my husband. And so it, the distance of where we lived wasn't really compatible. So I asked for a transfer. I mean, as it happened, we had a pretty awful um, situation happen at the time where um, there was a problem with our accounts. And um, I guess this is another thing. It's a what do you want to be known for in your career or what are your strengths? I've, I always used to say that I was a, a troubleshooter. And I think the thing going down to Swansea to help out, it's always been, I've always liked to use my HR skills to perhaps hear grievances or disciplinaries or deal with situations that, that contributed to the organisation but wouldn't have been in my job description. Um, and so this, this problem came up and I was asked to lead the programme of work to do that. I knew nothing. It was all to do with audit and assurance. I knew nothing about either of those things. 
But what I did know was that I understood the world of legal aid and I understood the world of um, fixing things. Um, and I also had the confidence of my boss. So I did that for about a year um, and, and it was a tremendous success. We went from having 70 million pounds worth of error to about 10, which was a, a, a no mean feat and, and tremendous success. But I had a career conversation with my boss at the time and he said, look, you've outgrown this department. You need to go somewhere else. Um, and that was an opportunity for going to a different place in government. Not sure I should name it, but I will. Um, so I chose at that point to go to the cabinet office. So the centre of government. And I went there for nine months and I loved the job. I hated the culture. I didn't really um, thrive there. People seemed to be only going into the, the cabinet office to get a promotion and they would do a project, they deliver a project and they'd walk away. I, I'm probably overemphasizing here and I'm sure this wasn't everybody, but it felt to me at the time that projects would get delivered, people would walk away saying, oh, I did this fantastic work and delivered this project, aren't I marvellous? They'd get their promotion, they'd go somewhere else and within 10 minutes, the project had completely failed and you know, wasn't delivering what it was supposed to do. So it didn't feel a very collaborative, supportive place. And I think, as I said, right at the beginning, that's really important to me, that sense of team. It's the only time in my career, and I think, I'll tell you exactly the, the, the way that this morning went. I woke up one morning, I had a shower, my husband had his shower. He came into the bedroom and said, Jane, get out of bed. I'd gone back to bed um, and he said, you need to go to work. And I said, I can't go to work. If I do, I will say or do something which is unrecoverable. I said, we're going on holiday in three days time. And I'm not going into the office between now and then. And when I come back, I'm going to have a plan. And that's what I did because I knew that I had reached rock bottom working there. It wasn't good for me. I wasn't good for them. Um, I, you know, it was it was very hard because I'd always prided myself on being quite um, a high achieving person. But there was there was a cultural mismatch. The leadership didn't really set the right tone for me and, and it felt it felt the wrong place for me. And so, yeah, we went to Italy for a week and I came back and I'd hatched a plan. And I then reached out and contacted everybody I knew that I thought could be helpful to see where else I might go in the civil service. And lo and behold, somebody that I had worked with in the cabinet office um, said, yeah, we've got this job at the Home Office. Um, it's wake, working in human resources, so I'm not sure if you're interested. And I said, well, I am actually qualified in human resources because I'd actually done a degree level qualification when I was working in private practice. And they said, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. It's an operational job. We want you to fix our executive recruitment. And so that's that's where I ended up. I ended up in the Home Office. Um, and I was HR director there for two and a half years before I left the civil service. And I thoroughly loved every minute of that job. It was hard work, but it was really enjoyable. One thing there, you got back and you rang everybody that you knew. When we're helping people find work, it's very rarely do you find it by sitting and completing 200 applications online? It, it's who you know, isn't it? And Absolutely. I've just finished a book uh, with the Aspiring Leaders Group, How Women Rise. And one of those is saying, women are great at networking, building relationships, but we're not so good at leveraging those contacts. But you've just given a great example of where you leveraged hundred percent because women women feel that there's a thing with women where, where they tend to think that it's not it's not honest or it's not authentic or whatever to, to ask for that help because it, it feels like you're um I don't know like you're getting around the processes or whatever this comes down to basic mentoring that's all it is um it, it's what what men 
And I, I don't want to be sexist. I'm not trying to be. But there are differences, like you say, in how women and men approach things. And, and it is statistically proven that men have far more mentoring relationships than women do. There are far more men that have a mentor. Um, and mentoring is one of the single biggest unlockers to progressing your career. It really is. Having someone that can be your champion, that can give you, I don't know, contacts or leads to follow or, you know, all of those sorts of things. And this was somebody that I'd worked with. They'd seen me in action. They knew what I was known for. They knew what I could do and what I could deliver. And so it was really quite an easy sell. Hmm. So I know that you've moved again at least twice since then. <laughs> so, so you did two years at the home office. Where did you go then? So at the home office, they were running a fast track scheme for um, HR people to become chief people officers in, in government. And actually, it was quite interesting because I applied for it. And my boss was actually on holiday at the time. So one of the other directors was managing the programme. And he said, oh, I'm not going to put you forward, Jane, because you've not got deep HR expertise. You, you've, 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 done, you've done different things in your career. And what we're looking for is people with deep HR experience. I fundamentally disagree with that view, by the way, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and so I, I happened to be having coaching at the time. And I discussed it with my coach. And it was it was a revelation, actually. I decided at that point that it wasn't about not going on a course. Actually, we talked about, but is that what you really want? Do you really want to be a chief people officer in government? And I didn't. I just wanted another badge. I just wanted to go on another talent programme and be chosen and, and do something else. Um, and that's not the right thing, actually. The right thing for me was we actually found the next thing that I needed to do, which was to leave government. So I was on a leadership program. I did go on a different one and it was a senior women's leadership program. And that was cross sector, private and industry, um, private and public with the Whitehall Industry Group, which is a very big um, organisation in the UK, which is is great. Um, and I would say that's the single most um, effective intervention in my career um, and as part of that they encouraged us to go and speak to senior female leaders and my husband said oh come and speak to the HR director at the Financial Conduct Authority um, you'll really like her so I went to have a cup of coffee with her and within 10 minutes she offered me a job so I yet yeah, turned my back on a 15-year career in the civil service and went to join a regulator in a sector I knew nothing about. Um, so I went to the Financial Conduct Authority and I did three and a half years there before I moved to the current job I'm in. Um, and I will go back to that person saying, you know, you, you need deep HR experience. I actually don't believe. Oh, I think there are some fantastic HR leaders out there, but I think business experience is really, really good to have in your toolkit. I think now sitting as a member of the executive team, the fact that I can talk about audit and assurance and I can read a set of accounts and I can talk from having run a large operation. And I also know the people and legal risks related to um, employment law. I think it's not a bad skill set to have. Absolutely. It's not a bad skill set to have. So knowing a little bit then about a lot, as you were talking about all of your moves, you kept repeating that, so I moved into yet another thing that I didn't actually know anything about. And so you added something to your toolkit. And then you moved away from that into your current role at the Civil Aviation Authority. Yeah, that wasn't conscious. I was quite enjoying the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. To be honest, I didn't enjoy it at the beginning. I went there and I got a 50% uplift in my salary because the civil service doesn't pay that well. Um, and I was probably working two or three levels below what I'd been working at in the civil service. 
to be honest, because the civil service jobs are just so big. And actually, when I was looking to find a new job, I found that people almost didn't believe me when I said what the job was that I was doing in the civil service. It was huge. Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, I was I was enjoying the Financial Conduct Authority. We just moved everybody from the headquarters in Canary Wharf to East London, um, which was a big cultural change program and actually was very focused on well-being and making um, having the building the new building focused on well-being I I really enjoyed that project and then um, I think probably for the first time in my career I was headhunted then somebody actually came to me and said here's a job at the Civil Aviation Authority you'd be really good for it and I I just decided it was too big for me I didn't engage with the headhunters at all and then they just kept ringing me and I spoke to my husband one evening and I said I'm going to ring them tomorrow and just tell them I'm not interested and I don't know what made me do it but I opened the um the job description just before I was going to ring them and everything on the job description I felt I could do so I thought you know what when I got interviewed at the FCA for for the job leading the cultural change program I've made a bit of a mess of the interview because I hadn't actually had that many interviews over the years so I thought I know I'll go for a bit of interview practice I'll just go along nothing to lose and I went for the first interview and I met the chief executive and I just I was blown away by how people focused he is and I just then desperately wanted to work for him um, and then I was lucky enough to yeah get the job and so found myself now in the aviation industry with absolutely no experience of that but um, lots of HR experience and leadership experience and a really good chief executive who's very down to earth and was very very supportive and yeah started there in what was it March 2019 almost a year under your belt then before the pandemic hit. Yeah, things don't always turn out that way though, do they? So I started in March and by September, I'd been deployed to Birmingham Airport for two weeks to run the repatriation of Thomas Cook passengers um, (laughs) back to the UK. Um, So not an HR job at all, but um, in times of real um, serious issues for the the organisation, and, you know, this was the biggest civil repatriation since World War II. Um, so we were all dispatched to different airports and I decided that with my accent it might be quite nice to go back to Birmingham for a bit and um, it was an absolute joy to be stood on the concourse welcoming people back from you know a, a terrible situation where they were worried that they might be stranded in a foreign country they were undergoing hotels were locking them in the hotel before their bills were paid um, but actually to be the smiling face and welcoming people back and seeing the relief um, w- was an honour. So, I, yeah, I did 24-7 um, work on that. And when I tell you the first uh, thing I had to do when I arrived at the airport was to tell 300 people that they weren't going on the holiday, that they turned up to the airport expecting to go on at five o'clock in the morning. That was not a pleasant task to do. Um, and then... December, I was back up there doing the same thing when Flybe went into administration. Um, and then as soon as I knew it, the pandemic had hit. And then I have been the, I've been leading our internal response to um, COVID during the pandemic. And whilst it is hard for everybody, um, I think running a human resources department, it's been especially hard. We are the caring heart of the organisation. And, you know, I've got a, probably a big, a better gender mix and age demographic in my team than much of the rest of the organisation, given we're quite a technical one. Um, so I had lots of my team members are mothers, fathers, carers, um, and they were trying to look after their own responsibilities as well as caring for the welfare of 1400 people in the organization and that that has been a significant ask and the word that you used earlier on that you consider yourself a a troubleshooter I mean that is absolutely what your role seems to 
be. It continues to be, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. If I haven't got a problem to sort out, I'll make one. <laughs> <laughs> Welcoming people back, repatriation, it reminded me what a good friend you are. And I know that we're going to move on to talk about how you give back. But I will never forget <laughs> when I was moving to France and I had this idea I was going to have my eyes lasered. <laughs> <laughs> before I came over here and of course when you decide to have both eyes lasered on the same day you certainly can't drive so you said I'll pick you up and you can stay with me and can you remember what you said when you walked in I was feeling a bit I couldn't see a thing with these big cotton wool pads on my eyes and you walked in and I thought oh she'll comfort me yeah <laughs> I just told you you looked like the fly <laughs> Jeff Goldblum in the fly. <laughs> and actually, that was just what I needed. That's you giving back as a friend, but I know that you do a lot to give back to many other people. So how important is that to you? Hugely. I've had the luxury of having a number of mentors, sponsors, just cheerleaders throughout my career. So I've done various things and it just depends. It's also a part of learning. I want to hear other people's perspectives. I'm interested in people and people's lived experiences. I've done, I've done a whole range of things. So I used to be a coach for an organisation called Teach First because there was a lack of teachers. But latterly, I guess I've become a bit more focused on coaching young women in their careers. So I talk about the Whitehall Industry Group and the, the Senior Women's Leadership Programme that I did for, with them. I'm a, a mentor for them. So every every programme that they do, I'm, I'm always really keen to have a, a mentee. And I've gone on to their broader mentoring framework now. So I do some of that. I'm a member of the steering group for the women in aviation and aerospace. This is about improving the diversity in the aviation industry, which is sadly lacking. And so being on the steering group, I also then mentor um, on a, a a platform called Alpha, which is um, Alta, sorry, which is supposed to be about improving uh, the opportunities for women. And particularly it's around STEM subjects. Now, I know nothing about that. And if it's somebody looking to be a pilot or whatever, I know nothing. Um, but actually, there are so many other jobs in, in aviation. You, it isn't all about flying or engineers. Um, and, you know, and certainly moving into things like space and technology, um, there are so many more opportunities. So whatever I can do I'll always seek to do that I mean somebody said to me the other day they had a chemistry conversation with me to see if I um if we matched to be a mentor and I think her primary concern was but you've already got like three or four how can you fit me in I'm just like well I just will because it's important and I'll, I'll make time for it um that's as well as any mentoring I do in the organization so I'll quite often just randomly reach out to somebody in the organisation um, who I know maybe just needs that bit of a career conversation. I actually went into the office a few weeks ago to see somebody um, just to talk to her about her next steps. You know, I've got two daughters at university. I want other people to do the same things for them. Like I said, it's so easy to make a make something happen for somebody, to open a door. And it, it just it makes you feel good but you can't begin to imagine how much it moves them on. I can't remember who, is it Maya Angelou who said the, you know, people forget what you said or what you did, but it's how they remember how it made you feel. Um, and I, I think I had a brilliant one this week, actually. The person I'm mentoring from the Senior Women's Leadership Group said to me, oh, I mentioned your name to somebody the other day. And she said, not the Jane Cosgrove. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, people quite often have that reaction. Um, and it turns out, actually, she was somebody that I'd worked with um, in the legal aid agency. Yeah, 20 years ago. It must be sort of yeah, 15, 20 years ago. And she um, she'd raised a grievance and I dealt with her grievance and she she said to this person just the respect and the integrity and the thoroughness of, of the investigation you know I'd, I'd be delighted to get back in touch and she sent me a LinkedIn request and so we've been having a good old chat on LinkedIn. 
and that's the measure of somebody isn't it the measure of if you can if you're going through a really difficult thing with somebody like a complaint or a grievance or if you downsize in an organization if the respect of the people is still there then you know that you've done it right I think yeah but then I'm no angel I'm sure there are other plenty of instances where people would say she's walked past me she's been quite dismissive because sometimes I I remember a, a, a time in the public defender service somebody that worked there she couldn't get childcare. we had a meeting she brought her children in and I shut the door because I was working on something that was really um it was budgets and I, I had to concentrate and I think she stewed on it for about a week and then she said to me did I upset you with the children making too much noise and I was like oh my word no no I just needed to concentrate and so it's really difficult you know you might you do things and, and you don't intend to do anything at all. I try and be as straightforward as I can with people and say to them, you know, if I've got something to say, if there's some feedback you need to hear, you will get it. It won't be nasty. It will be said in a, in a, in a hopefully, a way that you can build from it. That's but true. please, if, if, you, if you feel like there's something that I'm not saying, you, you do need to say it to me. That's true. And it's a breath of fresh air, Jane, to work with people who do just have straightforward communication. You don't have to make assumptions about what you're thinking or what you're feeling. I wonder if you could give some advice, because I'm often asked, how do I find a mentor? And I suppose they're meaning a mentor with similar skills to develop the skills or in that particular sector. What would you advise? How did you find yours? Oh, I think most of mine were were through work and they were people that were either a boss or someone that I admired or that sort of thing. Some of it is professional development sometimes. Some of it, I would say, I think the um, professional areas, so like I'm a member of the Chartered Institute for Personal and Development, so some of those areas and some of the um, sort of technical or membership groups are really starting to see now the benefits of mentoring and coaching. So quite often the, these schemes might pop up and you just won't be aware. I think there's something there around being curious. LinkedIn, you know, I use LinkedIn, look at people, contact people. I know we all get really random LinkedIn requests and I'm quite choosy sometimes because I, you know, certainly on sales things, I don't accept them. But I would say, you know, take a chance when there are networking events going on. And this is the brilliant thing with the pandemic at the moment, actually, because the networking events are so much more inclusive in a way. You can have so many more people um, yeah, my daughter went for a, an internship and normally it would be 30 people. I think there were about 3,000 on it when she like, she was a bit disappointed because she felt it, it just felt a bit diluted. But actually, the vast majority of those people would never have had an opportunity to have an internship with a, a law firm of that calibre. Mm. Um, so I think it's looking at some of these um online opportunities that you get and when you're in meetings if you see someone doing things that you like don't be afraid to reach out in your professional network and just say to somebody I really admired how you did that in in that meeting would you mind giving me you know half an hour of your time for a few months once a month most people will do it you put me onto a book deal years ago and I go back to it with a, as a staple feel the fear and do it anyway by yeah, Susan Jeffers. That, that prompted so many of my actions, yes. Sadly, I, bought that book no for both, I bought that book for both of my daughters, and I know you bought it for your daughter, and I've recommended that to so many women. Mm. And it really is just ask. People are surprisingly generous with their time, with their advice, with their information. But that, that's true. And like you say, people are busy. We are choosy. But if somebody comes and says something reasonable, like, could you find half an hour once a month? The answer is probably yes. And I had somebody the other day in India who she sent me seven questions 
before the meeting. So if you do get a mentor, then come prepared. Don't yeah. arrive and then, well, what would you like to ask me? Well, I haven't really thought about it. So we don't mind giving our time, but come prepared, I think. That's right. And, and if we can't spare our time, quite often we might know somebody else that might be able to be a help. That's right. That's right. We know, you know but who will. Sign up for events. Do whatever you can. Keep looking at the who are the people leading in your area, um, you know, of expertise or the kind of industry or sector you'd want to get into. Mm. Um, because quite often they'll be giving keynote speeches. You can start to look at organisations, you know, follow certain organisations on Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever. Just keep abreast of what organisations are doing. Thank you. I know that that, that will be useful. So the takeaways then, the takeaways for people i know you sent me some top tips do you want to go through them you start in life any knockbacks or anything like that don't let it hold you back just keep trying keep learning take that as a bit of a oh that didn't work out very well you know like i say about the cabinet office that could be seen as a failure no it wasn't it just didn't fit move on and be a success i think be the best you don't try and be somebody else be authentic my mum used to say to me, bless her, she was Scottish and had a very, very thick Scottish accent. And in fact, people used to think she was a man on the phone. Um, she used to say, people only lose their accent if they want to. And it's a bit like that with, with who you are. Don't try and mould yourself into somebody else. Be the best you can. I, I do know that workplaces shape people. So I know that my, my way of thinking now, where I am, is actually very different to where I was at the Home Office or the Financial Conduct Authority, because I've got a chief executive who's very focused on the people. And so I can be more creative rather than being bound by the rules, which I was in those other two organisations. Watch other people, read, be curious, but only implement things that, that actually fit with how you are. I think the imposter syndrome piece, we've all got it. You just have to learn to live with it and manage it. Um, sorry, that sounds a bit COVID, doesn't it? It's going to be here forever. We just have to live with it. Just don't don't beat yourself up about things. Try and dust yourself off. Move on. Sitting in a situation, do take those moments to speak to that little voice in your head that's saying you're not worthy because that's that's not right. And the other thing, knowing a little about a lot is actually quite helpful. So where I am now, I can contribute on a range of things. I'm not saying I'm an expert on any of them, but I can actually ask some questions that I think are the right kind of questions. Um, but actually, there's also that piece about knowing, not knowing enough is good because it allows you to let the people who do know a lot about those subjects to flourish and to actually deliver some great stuff. It's amazing what people deliver when you just give them the space to do it. Um, and I think you were just saying there before my partner interrupted uh, the, the flow. That's the beauty of doing a podcast at home. That somebody said to you, Jane, I don't know why you contribute on a subject you know nothing about. And so what was your response to that? Well, that's right. It was a, an end of year review and I asked for some feedback from my peers and he was one of the, the technical people around the table and it was at the Financial Conduct Authority and he said, you know, you comment on regulation and, and how the approach that we're going to take to regulation. I don't know why you think you should have an opinion on that because you're in HR. He never asked me what I'd done before. And actually what we did in this public defender service in, in legal aid, there was a form of regulation in that and nothing's unique. And that's the thing. Allow everybody a voice around the table, not just the experts, and you will come to much better conclusions. And the two things there. First of all, don't make an assumption that you know somebody's background. But the second thing is that it's great to ask questions from a beginner's mindset, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Because you're seeing something from a different point of view that the experts will really have their head full of them. Absolutely. I did trip myself up earlier in my career because I used to give permission to people to think I was stupid because I would say, oh, it might just be me being a bit blonde or I'm being a bit stupid. I do still say that occasionally, but not as much as I used to. 
Um, and that's when I got told by my boss, but Jane, you're giving people permission to think you're stupid. Rephrase it in the, can you just tell me a bit more about that? Can you explain that in simpler terms? If I was the man on the street, what I, what, how might I hear that? And that's also in the book, How Women Rise, that, that we do use extra words and we, we ask for permission. And then the last thing I'd say is give back. I'm incredibly fortunate to have achieved what I've achieved in my career. I love my job. I look forward to work every day. And if I can help anybody to do that, whether it's coaching, mentoring, just recommending things to do. I, I, I must say I'm more of a mentor than a coach. I like to give advice. I'm not as good at listening as I would aspire to be. I'm working on it constantly. (laughs) And I think that's the other thing, recognise that none of us is a finished product. When you actually give to other people, you also learn. We use the term reciprocal mentoring in, in our workplace because that's what it is. It's not reverse mentoring, it's reciprocal because each party will always learn something. Oh, I like that. That's so much better than reverse mentoring. Reciprocal. So Jane Cosgrove, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much on a personal level for your 20 years of support, but thank you for doing this podcast. I know that so many of the things that you've gone through and that you've talked about will help a lot of people out there. So thank you for coming. Thank you, Jill. It's been a delight. And I hope even one person can get something out of it. (laughs) We could break into song if I could help somebody. (laughs) (laughs) okay thank you thank you very much